0: Well, good morning, I have the uh, the privilege and the honor of introducing our guest speaker this morning from Dallas, Texas, uh, his name is Will Ford, how many of you have ever heard Will Ford? All right, about 25% of you, so you're in for a, a real treat. Um, Will is a prophetic voice in our nation, he's an author, a speaker had the privilege of really connecting in January. We did a a Dallas prophetic summit out there and uh, just really have been following him from afar and recently uh, made a connection. And I just want you as we're gathered here this weekend, uh, just to ask God for ears that hear and eyes that see. Will definitely has a mantle to help uh, not only expose uh, things that have to be exposed Uh, But also, I believe, to bring unity and revelation to the body of Christ. And uh, Will, I felt like I was just supposed to share this publicly with you, but I had a dream last night where um, I saw you laying down on the ground, and I felt like the Lord said in the dream, lay down one more time in my presence. And I saw a ladder coming down from heaven, angels ascending and descending. And I really believe that the Lord is saying that where he's taking you, there's about to be angels assigned to you as you travel the nation and even the nations. And this angel is the angel of Phineas. And if, if you don't know Phineas in Numbers chapter 25, he eventually became a high priest. But he rose up and he slew a man uh, who uh, had been sleeping with a woman from another nation, basically the issue of sexual immorality and intermingling of idolatry. And Numbers 25 says about Phineas, for he was jealous for his God. And I believe that there's a real jealousy for your God that will come upon you. If you'll only lay down in his presence one more time, he's going to reignite you and kindle a fire Regarding sexual immorality, abortion, racism, uh, the, there's a, a one more time anointing coming upon you. Angels being assigned to you. So, could you guys stand with me and give Will Ford a big Lakeland welcome?
1: Thank you so much. How much the <laughs> Bless the Lord. I'm so. Man, I, I said to him, how am I supposed to minister after that? Jesus. <laughs> so the preach after that, that was amazing. Wow. So, so honored to be here. Uh, see, I have uh, brought with me uh, uh, a little artifact, actually a, a memorial stone, if you will. If they, they could bring that up, that, w- that would be great. Uh, if you could, while they're doing that, oh, there it is right there. I didn't see it over there. Yeah, that'd be good, that'd be good. Some of y'all wonder what's in the box. He says, "Turn around this way." <laughs> all right, so you get this side, I get this one. I think you got some in the front. Oh, right here. All right, all that for a blanket, right? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I travel with props. Oh, let's leave, the, leave that right here for me. Thank you. We put this on top. Slide it over a little bit, yeah. But let's slide it over to the middle, so it's easy for us to get over there. I know it's kind of heavy, huh? It It comes with a little company, doesn't it? (laughs) All right. Some of y'all wondering what this is. We'll get to that in a second. Go to Joshua chapter four. Talking about memorials, right? Talking about memorials, and um, we have this amazing God who loves to remember. Loves to remember. And so I love memorial day for that reason. But you know, the Bible is where we get the whole understanding of memorials. So Joshua 4 says this. So Joshua called the twelve men whom it appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you. So that when children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Now, if God says something once that's good enough for me, it's good enough for you, right? If he says something twice, he's like, really trying to get this point across? (laughs) He says the exact same thing, not in another chapter of the Bible, but in the very same same, uh, chapter of Joshua, chapter 4. Go down to Joshua, chapter 4, verse 19. Now, the people came up from the Jordan on the 10th of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho, and those 12 stones, which they had taken up from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, and he said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? That you should inform them, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Isn't that powerful? Whole understanding of memorials, I'll explain a little bit more about that. But, you know, your prayers go up as memorials, too. All right? So the prayer that's our memorial, honestly, is John 17. Flip over to John 17. All right? And while you're you flipping there, I just want to tell you, you know, your, <coughs> your pastor, your apostle, I don't know what to call them. I never met somebody so young with so much authority on their life <laughs> in Jeremiah. But I've been following them, honestly, since about 2006. I was up late one night, and... Uh, Stumbled onto a website where I just saw this like this dream journal from this you know young prophetic leader. I'm like I just love the way God speaks to him through dreams. God speaks to me the same way through dreams. I'm gonna share a couple uh, today. Even and and, uh, I've been following his ministry from afar ever since. And then God gave him a dream uh, some time ago, and he invited me to do this conference. And I don't know. I just I just like what God is forming and shaping. I love unity through diversity. You know in the oneness that that bursts that so anyways John 17 I love John 17 because this is Jesus praying Jesus praying he's letting us hear his prayer right it's like uh, when I was growing up six I'm about six years old I remember and my mother I, I did something I, played, I was playing the fool I did something I wasn't supposed to be doing again right <laughs> six years old and so my mother says you know what you're not going to get another whooping. Just come in here with me right now. Because if I whoop you right now, I'm too mad to whoop you. So just come in here with me. And she starts praying. And she makes me sit down next to her while she's praying. And she's praying. And she's going in. And she's like, God, now I've only known him for six years. I know of you a whole lot longer. If you want to take him right now, I'm quite all right with that. And I'm thinking, man, I better send up some competing prayers right now. God, please want to live to see seven, you know. Right? Remember later on, you, you thought you knew everything, and you were in your 20s. I'm 53 right now, right? But uh, in my 20s or whatever, you know, get a car and get out of college. You think you know life, know stuff or whatever, 18, 19, 20, some other. You come in a little tipsy, right? Come in a little high. And who's up at 2.30 in the morning praying for you? Your mama, your grandmama, your praying daddy, right? They know you're in the house, but they want you to hear the things that they are praying for you about. He's talking about a buzzkill. <laughs> That's a buzzkill. Sobers you up immediately. This is Jesus praying for us. And he's letting us hear what he's praying for us. He's letting us hear the things that are concerning his heart regarding us. He wants us to hear this prayer, right? So this is him praying. Look at John 17. It's interesting. Y'all mentioned it earlier. Y'all love all all of my sermon notes today. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus praying. And thou didst sent me into the world. I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask on behalf of these alone. Talk about the disciples. But for those also who will believe in me through their word, turn to your neighbor and say, He's praying for you now. What's he praying? That they may all be one. Even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory was thou given me, I've given to them. Why? That they may be one. Just as we are one, I and them and thou and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Why? So that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. I want to share with you guys, this is my first time here. I just want to introduce myself to you through this amazing story that's going on with my life. God uses me kind of like as a sign, kind of like a sign prophet kind of guy. I always wanted to walk in signs and wonders, but God may be a sign to wonder. And it's kind of not fair because I get to introduce other people into other aspects of the miraculous, but I'm their sign that God is about to do something with them. So, anyway, I mean, I, I've seen deaf ears open. I've cast out a few demons, but I get to introduce everybody else to the stuff they're about to walk into. This church, this fellowship is about to go to a whole nother level. <laughs> and uh, so I'm your sign that things are about to go. It's about to get crazy up in here. <laughs> It really is. Um, before I pray for you guys and, and get rid of the preliminary stuff, I do have a prophetic word for the house. I remember uh, I was there in worship this morning, and I kept hearing the Lord say to me over this place that uh, there's a sound of worship that's coming out of here. You're going to have your own worship music. You're going to have your own worship CDs. And I, I saw a CD that says Songs from the Father's Heart, and I saw another one that says The Father Sings. And, uh, and, and I was looking, I was like, where, I didn't see a lot of men on the worship team, so I'm like, where is it the Father sings? I know it's like spiritual, out of the Father's out. but then when I saw these men up here singing earlier, I mean, just a little while ago, listen, prophetic song, stand up, matter of fact, all the worship teams, stand up. Yeah, Lisa, we used to pray together back 2006, come on. Man. So, Father, right now, let's stretch your hands, God, thank you for these Levites and a whole new generation of Levites that you're raising up in this house. I thank you, Lord, that you sing over us. You love to sing over Zephaniah 317. God, the Father sings. I thank you for the songs of the Father's heart being released through Lakeland once again. They're going to bring in the prodigals. They're going to bring in the lost. And I thank you for songs, Lord, that they're going to summon people back home. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So, uh, if you could put up the, the first slide for me, real quick. Uh, everything that I'm going to talk about today is in this book called The, the Dream King. And uh, it's called The Dream King How the Dream and of the King's Being Fulfilled to Heal Racism in America. And uh, so, my wife and I, we have this ministry called 818 The Sign. You can put that up for me. And I kept seeing this number over and over again 818. I uh, kept seeing it on license plates, kept seeing it on clocks. How many of y'all, you, you get numbers like that, right? I'm not in a numerology, but God would sometimes give me a number to drive me to scripture. And so I kept seeing it over and over again. I thought it was psychosomatic until one day um, I'm driving, and this guy cuts me off in traffic. How dare he? And his license plate had my initials with the number 0818 on it. So I thought, okay, there's that number again. I kept waking up at it. i get ready to speak in different places. i look at the clock. It'd be 818. So my Bible falls open one day in the middle of a fast to Isaiah 818, and it says this, I and the children who the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel. And I read it, and it wasn't so much that Isaiah was talking about how he walked in signs and wonders. He, he was saying, my family is the sign and wonder for the whole nation. And so he had these two sons. One son, his name was... Um, Meher Shalel Baz, his name literally means swift to the spoil, speedily to the prey. He represented the crisis in the nation of Israel. How I many of you know there are people right now who represent the crisis in our nation so many different ways? The sign of the crisis that we have right now, with the unborn, condition of in inner cities, the open crisis, the sign of broken covenant, right? But then the beautiful thing is Isaiah had another son. Shows up in Isaiah 7.3. His name is Sher Sherdrashub literally means a remnant shall return. So one son represents the crisis. The other one represents the call. One son represents the dilemma. The other son represents the deliverance. One son represents the turmoil. The other son represents the turnaround. God is saying, I'm raising up a remnant that's going to so radically turn their hearts to me. They're going to turn their families around. They're going to turn their community around. They're going to turn a nation around. God's raising up the sign of the Turnaround. So that's the ministry my wife and I have, and uh, so when you d- do your offering checks, so don't make it out to me, I'm sowing everything today into our ministry at 818, I don't take a salary for it, we have a conference that we have coming up in, in August, and I just want to sow into that, if you would if sow into that for me, because we're contending for one, three different things, one, <laughs> revival hitting the inner city, we got to have that happen, two, healing the racial divide, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. And and three a revival that ends abortion. So, so that's that's my heart. Cause you kill the child, you kill the son, and you cut off the voice of God to a generation. All right. So that being said, you can take those down. We'll come back to those slides at the end. Guys, thank you so much. And uh, let me pray. Father, here we are. Thank you so much, Lord, for for this amazing answer to prayer and bringing us here today. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the sign. <laughs> You are the wonder. And in Hebrews 2.13, you said, I am the truth, and the Lord has given me for signs and wonders. Lord, you wanted a family to be a sign that is so provocative. There's so much love and unity amongst those people, that lost people will say, according to John 17, what must I do to receive that kind of hope, that kind of unity, that kind of love? What must I do to be saved? Make us an answer to your son's prayer today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. All right, so some of y'all are wondering what this uh, old uh, Uncle Tan is doing up here. This is about 200 years old. It's an old kettle pot. It was used by the slaves in my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, they used it for another reason. It's a memorial stone that's been passed down from generation to generation generation in my family. You hear the whole story about memorial stones, Joshua chapter 4, right? So basically, why did they have you know these memorial stones piled up on either side of the Jordan? Well, they had these huge rocks, you read the story there, they weren't small rocks, they were these stones were so big they had to carry them on their shoulders. One for each tribe, they piled them up on one side of the Jordan, you keep reading, you learn that they have actually piled them up also in the middle of the Jordan and also on the other side of the Jordan. Because there was a whole generation that basically had lived in the desert, and for 40 years, they had clothes that never wore out. Right? They had shoes that never wore out. Every day, they had little cakey white stuff that fell down from heaven called manna. They ate that every day. In other words, the supernatural was just normal for them. They were living without the sacrifice of all the other people who had gone before them. They didn't see a Red Sea part, but they heard the stories. So there were only two people alive from the previous generation, Joshua and Caleb. So God says, You know what? I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. I'm going to part the Jordan River the same way I of the Red Sea. I'm going to equate this generation with my power and send a message to, the, to, to my enemies there in Jericho at the same time. But then while the Jordan River is parted and they're walking across on dry ground, God says, You know what? I should have had a V8. Y'all remember that old commercial? Yeah, the baby boomers got that joke. The, the millennials not so much. They don't run that commercial anymore. Because I need to. I should have had a V eight. I should have remembered. There's going to be a generation after them that hadn't seen the Red Sea parted or the Jordan River parted. So here's what I want you to do: pile up huge stones on either side of the Jordan, even in the middle of the Jordan. And these memorial stones will provoke the next generation into the history of my faithfulness with their forefathers. And when they see those stones. You're to tell them that you didn't get them out of the Jordan River because you were good swimmers. Scuba gear wasn't invented yet. You tell them that the same God who parted the Red Sea is the same God who parted the Jordan River, and they'll part whatever circumstance for you. That's what this kettle pot is meant for my family. It's a memorial stone. To say the same God who parted the waters of slavery will part whatever circumstance for us. And I don't think it's a mistake that it comes from Lake Providence, Louisiana. Late Providence, I love what uh, uh, Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary how it defines providence. You know the Puritans, the Pilgrims they used to call God just that, providence. Providence is the continuous activity of the God by which He preserves and governs. It's the way God looks over seemingly insignificant things and apparent accidents. In other words. Your, your 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 commute here today, you have no idea how many things God prevented from happening on your way to getting here. right? Little accidents along the way that you thought were accidents. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are some little things that are accidents, but there are some things that happen that God works together for your good when you're called according to his purpose and you just wind up stumbled into something. You're like, oh my God, how did I wind up here? It's because providence was watching over it all. all right? And the way you understand what providence is doing is through prayer. When you start praying, all of a sudden you start seeing these uncoincidental, coincidental things happening. Have you ever noticed that? You start praying about something, and the thing you were praying about, just or the person you were praying for, whatever, all of a sudden just happens to call. Those things just don't happen to happen. Providence begins to move when you begin to pray. You can understand what providence is doing if you get a prayer life. I like what the Archbishop of Canterbury once said. He said, when I pray, the coincidences happen. But when I stop praying, the coincidences stop. <laughs> right, and the New Testament understanding of providence—the best way to understand it—is in Ephesians two and ten, where it says that we're God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, and we're walking out the works that He prepared beforehand for us to walk in. That word "workmanship" is a powerful Greek word. It's the word "poema." Everybody say "poema." So you hear the word "poem" in there, right? So think about it: you're God's poem you song. That's where the word poem comes from. But even greater than that, the word poema was, was originally a word that was used to describe someone who was a skillful tailor or a fabric maker. In other words, God has a tailor-made plan, a tailor-made destiny for your life. Right? Sometimes he has to take his, his needle and then stick us in, the you know what, to get us going. Right? But if you see somebody, like, if they're crocheting or do a needle needlepoint or whatever, if you notice, like, on one side of that tapestry, it's a big mess. It's like knots everywhere, string all over the place. You can't tell what they're working on. But then sometimes that poem or that person will turn it around so you can see the beautiful thing that they're working on. I think that's, that's what God is doing right now in all of our lives, especially with healing the race issue and other things that are going on right now. He's turning the tapestry around so we can see what he's working on. Just a little bit. All right, so I, I don't know how to dive into this story without just, just telling you a little bit about, about me and how I got started. in this. So back around 1999, into, yeah, in the 99, I read a book by Bill Bright. On, uh, and in, in that book, he said, God, give me two million people who will go on a 40-day fast for revival in America. And I said, God, make me an answer to that man's prayer. And so the first day of my fast, somebody spray painted my neighbor's car in my neighborhood. I said, okay, God, what do you want me to do? He said, start prayer walking in your neighborhood. How many of y'all prayer walk your neighborhood or prayer walk your campus? Yeah, if you, if you, if you don't, start, because, man, powerful stuff starts to happen, right? So I started prayer walking my neighborhood. And before long, man, I got a chance to meet people who were from different religions and Sharing the gospel with them. I got a chance to pray for people who were sick, soft folks get healed. But even greater than that, God broke my heart for revival in all of America. And all I could do was just walk and weep and pray for revival. I get up early in the morning and go late at night because I, I honestly I was just weep and cry so hard for revival and for a move of God where I was living. I started studying about the first great awakening and the second great awakening I had this one little nosy neighbor who used to look out the window while I was, you know, prayer walking. (laughs) Like that Gladys Kravitz guy. Remember that that show, Bewitched, the little nosy neighbor Gladys Kravitz? I had one of those in my neighborhood. She'd just be on her phone looking at me going, yeah, there he go again. I don't know what his wife did to him this time, but he's still walking and crying. (laughs) It's like I'm praying for you, lady. (laughs) But God was breaking my heart for this nation. But little did I know, Mr. Poema was connecting me to some unfinished business, connecting me to some memorial stones. So uh, I go to this powerful gathering in Washington, D.C., called The Call. I didn't know anybody there. I just knew I had to be there. and It was the last day of my fast that this thing was actually happening. And I break my fast at at The Call, and I I can tell you 400,000 people showed up and nobody knew, really knew the names of the speakers or the worship leaders. And it was one of the most catalyzing, powerful events of my life. And a few months later, I saw that some of the same people who were there were doing a prayer gathering in, in Colorado Springs. And so I thought, maybe I need to go there and just be a fly on the wall. They're praying for America. I thought, this would be great. So let's show up there to be a fly on the wall. But little it's the poema. Weave his stuff together. So I get there, and there's this uh, lady who I didn't know at the time named Cindy Jacobs. How many of you ever heard of her, Cindy Jacobs? Yeah. Yeah, and then she was praying for another guy named Dutch Sheets and uh, called up another young man named Billy Osten, who was a mentor, being mentored by Dutch. And she began to pray and prophesy over them that they would go to Williamsburg, Virginia, and do prayer and revival meetings. And then she stopped, and she said, hold up, there's something to this, because Dutch, his real name is William, because Billy, his real name is William, and here we are praying about them going to Williamsburg. Does anybody know what William means? So I'm in the back, you know, it's like four or five hundred people there. I'm in the back, and I just kind of shouted out and said, it means noble spirit, resolute protector. I know that because I'm a William, right? She said, that's right, who said that? And I was like, Ugh. I was just trying to be a fly on the wall, so I just kind of poked my hand up. She said, you in the back, you said that? And I was like, uh, yes, ma'am. She said, well, uh, you're Williams II, aren't you? Prophet lady. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, well, get down here. Then she said, it's too white up here anyway. Come on down. <laughs> 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 but when I come down, the spirit of God falls on William Dutch Sheets and William Billy Olson and me, William Ford III, and we just get blasted by the Lord. Never met each other before. Begin to weep over each other. If you know Dutch Sheets, he doesn't do that often. (laughs) And he said, you know what? If we do this prayer gathering to Williamsburg, you have to come with us. And first I'm thinking, "Okay, this would be like church camp, right? (laughs) You know, we exchange phone numbers, but we're never going to hear from each other again, right? But Mr. Poema, weaving something together. So Dutch preaches this powerful message Teaches this powerful message. I'll share like three or four minutes of that in just a moment. And it was enough to connect us because he started talking about connecting with the unfinished business of those who have gone before us in the place of intercession. And so uh, I told him the story the Kettle He had me share that at the conference. And he said, yeah, we're going to stay connected. Sure. sure enough, he did call me a week or two later. He said, well, not only do we want to go to Williamsburg, we want to go through all, all of New England and the Northeast and pray for a revival. And, uh, you know, bring that kettle pot that you were talking about from your family. We'll call it the kettle tour. <laughs> Remind people of the prayer bowls in heaven and use the memorial stones to build an altar for revival again in America. He said, I'll sing all the names of the places that we want to go to now since it's expanded. So here's what happens. Dutch sends me all the names of the cities he wanted to go to. And when he sends me on the name of the cities that he wanted to go to, I was dumbfounded because all the places that he wanted to go to, without knowing it, were names of streets in my neighborhood that I've been prayer walking. For example, went to Jamestown, the original settlement, Jamestown Court was across the street from me. Went to Princeton University, Princeton Street was two streets behind me. Went to Hanover, New Hampshire, Hanover Street was next to Princeton Street. Went to Dartmouth University, Dartmouth Court was four streets down. Went to New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven Court was one street down on the left. Went to Gettysburg. Gettysburg Street was around the corner from me. Literally, I could go on. And if I didn't have the city represented by the streets, I had the regions represented. For example, went to the Chesapeake Bay Area at that time. And they used to call that whole area the Chesapeake. And at that time, I lived on Chesapeake Street. So why would God do this with a white man named Dutch and a black man named William III? Well, it turns out the Dutch were the first was to bring slave ships into America in 1619, 400 years ago this year. And William III, that came from England, was the first king from England to send slave ships into America. God was saying to, to Dutch and I this, I want to use your relationship to show that I want to reverse the effects of yesterday's pain. I'm turning the tapestry around just a little bit so y'all can see what I'm working on right now. Acts 17, 26, 27, when God says, I made for one blood many nations and determined the bounds of the habitation time beforehand. We We all seek after God and find them, though he be not far from every one of us. And the thing that connected us together was this teaching Dutch had on synergy. Synergy is when you take two separate things and when you connect them together, they don't create an additional power but a multiplicity of power. Scientists say you take two horses, and if you put them together, if they're pulling the same load, it creates so much exponential power, it's as if a third invisible horse has been added. Spiritually, we know that one could put a thousand in flight, and two could put what? Ten thousand in flight. That's synergy. So think about it. We start getting all this agreement in prayer between red, yellow, black, and white. We start getting agreement in prayer between old and young, male and female. We can see the synergistic exponential release in the power of prayer like we've never seen before. Right, Psalm 133, right, which says how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together And what? Unity is like the anointing oil which flows from Aaron's head onto his beard and onto his robe. And the Bible says for there. Everybody say there. God's looking for a place called there. It's a place where we drop all of our agendas and come together and believe. A lot of people like to use Psalm 133 to talk about us just working together. But the work that he's talking about in Psalm 133 is the work of prayer. Why? Because Aaron was a high priest. When we get together in the work of prayer, something powerful starts happening. The oil begins to flow. And the other thing is this, anointings begin to mingle with the anointings from the past. Why do I say that? This says something that was so powerful. He said, not only can you agree in prayer with the person sitting next to you, you can also agree in prayer with a generation behind you. Talked about how he was at his alma mater Speaking at the school, Christ for the Nations, that's where I work as a professor. He's leading his alma mater in, 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 in prayer for revival. And the Lord said to him, Dutch, I want you to come in agreement with the prayers of the founder of this school. And Dutch thought to himself, okay, Holy Spirit, is this really you? Because that man's dead. He's been dead for more than 30 years, and I know you're not talking to the dead. And the Holy Spirit said to him, I didn't say come in agreement with him. I said come in agreement with his prayers, because his prayers are still alive before my throne. They're a memorial before my throne. (laughs) There are things I promised this man in prayer that I want to release into this school right now, but I can't do it yet because I need this generation to come to agreement with that generation. I want to release the synergy of the ages coming together. It's like the whole thing with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promised Abraham a nation, then he raises up an Isaac, then a Jacob, breaks that Jacob thing off there, boy, (laughs) makes him Israel because he promised this man back here a nation. And when he did it for Israel, it was just as if he'd done it for Abraham. So God will start something in one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations. David, you're going to build my temple. Solomon gets to do it. And when Solomon did it, David still got the credit. So finally, that scripture, Hebrews eleven thirty nine 39, and 40, made sense to me where it says, All these by faith. They were approved for, this, for their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. So that apart from us, that we may be perfect without us. In other words, there's this whole company of people looking over the balcony of heaven saying, hey, y'all, Jeremiah Johnson, Will Ford, (laughs) don't mess this thing up because God started something in us that he wants to complete exponentially through you. Jesus said it best when he said, what greater works than these are you going to do because I'm what? Going to the Father. So God to start something in one generation and complete it exponentially through future generations by connecting the anointings together. Why do I say that? Because the powerful thing about Psalm 133 is this, is that we don't understand Psalm 133 primarily because we don't understand how they used to use anointing oil. We anoint somebody today, we take a little bottle like this, praise God, we put a little on our finger, we thump people upside the head, and we call it a day, Right? I did a little slap with mine too, then I'm <laughs> don't slap people. They send people in the sozo. Don't do that.
0: <laughs>
1: well, we take a little oil, we thump people on the forehead, we call it every day. <laughs> but that's not what they did back then. They would take a whole gallon of oil, according to the scholars like Jack Hayford and other folks who studied this out. They take up to half a gallon or a gallon of oil and pour it all over that high priest's head. And that oil would drip down from his head, onto his beard, and onto his robe. Listen. That one robe was then passed down to the next high priest. But then when he was anointed to be the high priest for his today, as the oil dripped down, it mingled with the anointing from the past. And that same robe was passed down to the next high priest. In other words, there's supposed to be a momentum building anointing that goes from generation to, generation to generation to generation to generation in the place of prayer. In other words, the saturation of the ages, that's what God is looking for. Everybody's looking for the next woman that I lose, this or that. They're looking for the next purpose-driven something or whatever. I mean, I'm not knocking the authors or the titles. What I'm saying is this, God's not after originality right now. He's after a successor. And to a successor, he released a double portion of anointing on them that are so powerful and not only make them impactful in this generation, but also make them a springboard for future generations to come. So that's like the first little bit of Dusty's message and I was a wreck because I remember this pot that's been in my family. Like I said, it was used by the slaves of my family. They used it for cooking. They used it for washing clothes. But secretly, it was used for prayer. They were owned by a slave master in Lake Province, Louisiana, who would beat them for any reason, and praying was one of them. Now, back then, they called slavery, of course, the peculiar institution. It was very peculiar. It was very peculiar because back then, they wanted slaves to be Christians because they knew that Christian slaves made better workers. But they would pervert the gospel and say, slaves be obedient to your masters if you want to go to heaven. Now, we know we're saved by grace, through faith, not of works, so that no one should boast. We know it's a gift, right? But it's easy to teach slaves that that back then because it was against the law for slaves to read and write. And it was also against the law for anybody to teach them how to read and write. So while they wanted them to be Christians, they didn't want them to read the Bible. There was even one Bible that's there, I think, at the Bible Museum where all of the, uh, the book of Exodus and Esther is taken out of that Bible. <laughs> to make sure no preacher preached those messages of salvation and freedom and deliverance to slaves. Um, <clears throat> so that's one part of it. But the irony of, the, of all of that <clears throat> is that uh, they didn't want them to pray. They wanted them to be Christian, but they didn't want them to pray because it felt like prayer would foster hope. And if they got hopeful, they would try to run away. So this, this man on that plantation would literally beat my slave forefathers if he heard him praying. I'll give you an example of how cruel slavery was there on this plantation. What a story passed down in our family about a man named Uncle Willie who decided to go fishing without asking. And so the, the overseer and the slave master decided to make an example out of him on the plantation. So they strapped Uncle Willie to a tree and put both arms and legs around either side of that tree. They took a, a leather strap that was shredded, a whip that was shredded, which had rocks and nails and glass attached to it, something like the cat-of-nine-tails. And they beat the slave father of ours until all the flesh was pulled out of his back. The family, in an effort to save his life, they took a huge sheet and put lard or grease on it and wrapped it around his body. They put grease on the sheet so that the cotton on the sheet wouldn't stick to the exposed skin on his back. But in spite of their efforts and because of the slave master's cruelty, this family member of ours bled to death and died. So that story was passed down over and over again in our family. So that's how cruel slavery was there in Lake Providence. But listen, the folks who had this pot and passed it down, they were Christians, and they decided to pray anyway. So what they would do is they'd have a prayer meeting in the middle of the night. They had the prayer meeting in the middle of the night so that where everyone would sleep, they would be praying. And they would sneak into a barn at night with this pot. This is the very pot that they used. And once they got into the barn, they used this pot to muffle their voices. So, what they would do is they would take this pot and they would turn it upside down, lay it flat on the ground, and invert it. They would then take rocks and take rocks, about three or four rocks, and prop up the edges of the rocks the edges of the kettle, so it be suspended off the ground about an inch or two. They will then prostrate themselves and lay flat on the ground and put their lips in between the opening between the ground and the kettle so that the kettle muffled their voices as they prayed through the night. And the story that was passed down with the pot is this, is that they didn't think they would see freedom in their time, so they prayed for the freedom of their children and the next generation. One day freedom comes. There's this young teenage girl who decides to keep this pot and that story in our family. Now, why would she do that? She's probably thinking about all those who are dead and gone, who risked their lives to pray for her. She's probably thinking about all those who are too old to enjoy the freedom she's about to embrace. So she keeps this pot and this story in our family. And she passed the pot and the story down to Harriet Lockett. Harriet Lockett passed it on to Nora Lockett. Noah Lockett passed it on to William Ford Sr., who then gave it to William Ford Jr., who then gave it to me, William Ford III. So I'm there at this conference, I'm thinking about the heart that God had given me for revival. I'm thinking about the heart that God had given me for revival to hit our nations. And all of a sudden, while Dutch is talking, I remember this kettle pot in my family, and I'm thinking, oh my God, to whom much is given? Much is required. And I thought about the responsibility that God was calling me into. But then, but beyond that, I thought about the privilege. I thought, my God, I get to agree with the prayers of my forefathers for the freedom of this next generation. I thought about the exponential results that could be released and created from that. And that said, you know, Will, I was praying, looking for confirmation, just like you were about this whole kettle tour thing. <laughs> He said, God, do you really want me to take some cast iron cooking pot around the country to use it to represent the prayer bowls in heaven? Listen, Revelation 5 and 8 said there are bowls in heaven full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It's not a Tupperware bowl or a wooden bowl. It's a golden bowl. Listen, because that's how precious your prayers are to God. Listen, there's a prayer bowl over your family. There's a prayer bowl over Lakeland. There's a prayer bowl over Florida. There's a prayer bowl over this nation. God's looking for a new generation to resource the prayer bowls once again. He said, God, you want me to use some pot to represent the prayer bowls in heaven? Dutch said he had his Bible with with him, and it fell open to Zechariah 14 and 20. Part B of that verse says, and the cooking pots in the house of the Lord shall be like the bowls before the altar. So here's this cooking pot that's caught muffled prayers, the same way there's a bowl in heaven that catches up prayers like incense. Then Dutch said this to me. He said, wouldn't it be just like God in his justice and irony? They used the prayers of a slave generation to free a nation up for revival again. I'm glad he said generation because it wasn't just black Christian slaves praying back then. There were also white Christian abolitionists who knew that if any person was a slave, was a Christian, they knew that person was their brother. And they let their lives down for each other. Many of them had their houses burned. They were shot. They were killed. They were lynched because they chose to suffer with the people of God like Moses rather than compromise and wink at slavery. Right. One of them was a man named Elijah P. Lovejoy. I love to tell his story. In this town of Alton, Illinois, a slave was beat to death, and this white preacher became an abolitionist, and he started taking a stand against slavery. He bought one of the first printing presses that was ever uh, created, and he started printing up abolitionist material and sending it all throughout his town, all around his county. Many people began to shift from slavery to abolition, except for this angry mob of people who would come to his house and threaten his life and they destroyed his printing press. So Elijah P. Lovejoy goes before his city council, and he says, listen, it's the duty of the government to protect its citizens. Why aren't you protecting me? And the mayor and the city council said, sir, if you would just stop preaching what you're preaching and printing what you're printing, that will be your protection. Reminds me of some of the stuff they try to say to you, Jeremiah. (laughs) Elijah Peter Peter Lovejoy stands before them all, and he begins to weep. And he says, forgive my tears. I shed them not for myself, but for you and others. I cannot stop doing what I'm doing, because if I did, I would fear that the angel of the Lord with his flaming sword would pursue me wherever I'm going. I don't fear man. I fear God. And if I fall, my grave shall be made here in Alton, Illinois. End of quote. His words proved prophetic. An angry mob came burned his house down, and as he ran out to escape the flames, Elijah P. Lovejoy was shot and killed. That man's life is a memorial. God has not forgotten about people like that. May help me understand something, too. See, if my ancestors had been Muslims or Buddhists, I'd have no connection to this part of his history. But because they were Christians, listen, not only are these my ancestors and forefathers, they're yours, too. Why? Because we're connected because of the blood of Jesus. The abolitionists knew that. They knew they were fighting for their Christian brothers that were in slavery. They were laying down their, for their blood-bought brothers who were bought by the blood of Jesus. Right? In other words, I'm just as much a spiritual son of Charles Finney and Jonathan Edwards as you are of Martin Luther King and William Seymour and C.H. Mason. And when we come together in that kind of unity, that kind of agreement? Listen, something powerful happens. The oil begins to flow. Anointings begin to mingle. Yokes get to be broken off of nations. Because there was a godly remnant of black Christian slaves and white Christian abolitionists that prayed into being the first and the second great awakening. Had it not been for those revivals, slavery would have never ended in this nation. And there was this Supreme Court law back then called Dred Scott which said that slaves had no rights in a courtroom, and everybody thought it was set settled law. Everybody's a little favorite word now, a law. They got to shake their head when they say this, settled law. It's not settled till God says it settles. Because everybody thought Dred Scott would settle law. But God sends a revival, and that law gets broken in the hearts of people all around the country. That's why I say, you listen, the same God who broke the power of Dred Scott, he can break the power of Roe v. Wade. He can put an end to systemic poverty. He can stop our schools from being pipelined to prisons. He can shut down mass incarceration. He can put an end to the opiate crisis in the suburbs and shut down crack houses in the inner city. He's just looking for a new generation of people who will drop their agendas and come together and believe. I mentioned the abortion thing because, listen, I was in prayer one day and the Lord said to me, William, the litmus test for authentic revival in the days of slavery was the ending of slavery. The litmus test for authentic revival in your day will be the ending of abortion. So I'm all for goosebumps and people falling out. I love it. I mean, yeah. I've been down many a fire tunnel. But it has to transform people's hearts out there, y'all. I mean, there's the, the revival is not when Reverend Flip-Flop and Brother Weatherford come in and show up. <laughs> It's when God comes to town. It's when God comes to a country and we can contend for it again because He's done it before. I believe God wants to do it again in a powerful, powerful way. And the Lord said this to me in prayer that day. He said, William, you walked me through your neighborhood. Now I'm walking you through my neighborhood. And I'm sharing with you my heart about how it's broken over the division between the Native Americans and the settlers. I'm sharing with you my heart about all the hurt I have over the division between red, yellow, black, and white in this nation. And the Lord said this to me. He said, William, if I heard the whispers, if I heard the whispered prayers of slaves underneath kettle pots, how much more so do I hear the silent screams of babies being aborted in this nation? My heart was shattered over this issue. What we don't understand is that I can get into eugenics, I can know the whole understanding of Margaret Singh and Planned Parenthood and all that, but here's the thing, the fundamental thing is this, I don't have time to go into all that, the race issue is tied to this stuff more than people realize. Because <laughs> the deal is this, when the people that you cannot see become optional, it's inevitable that some of the people that you can see will be marginalized even to the place of elimination. God is saying, you know, a lot of people saying black lives matter, other people saying all lives matter. Understand where everybody's going with that. God is saying, drill down deeper, life matters. He weeps over all the shedding of the innocent blood. The same God who wept over Philander Castile is the same God who wept over the five police officers who were killed in Dallas. And he weeps over 60 million babies that have been aborted in this nation. He weeps over it all so God wants to raise up and release a new revival that releases civil rights to everybody, including the unborn. But we got to deal with our own heart issues in the church. He's going to answer his son's prayer. <laughs> He's going to make us one. We've been focusing on unity for so long in the church. You know, what? the focus of John 17 wasn't on unity. The focus of John 17 was on one. It mean, he wants to make us one. This hit me like a ton of bricks last week. I I saw this maybe for the first time, but just hit me on my heart. The Lord basically kind of said to me, William, you made unity almost an idol. The focus is not on unity through diversity, the focus is on oneness. And I was like, God, (laughs) oneness. How do we do oneness? We can't bring about oneness. I I quit, I give up. And the Lord was like, Great, now I got you right where I want you. It's going to take a miracle to bring oneness in the church. But unity will be the byproduct of the oneness that I'm bringing through the revival that's going to happen. And people will be in one mind, one accord, and in one place, and all of a sudden, something powerful is going to happen. So the Lord began to deal with me in my own stuff I was dealing with race around the race issue. I thought I was healed up. and <laughs> Wow, I mean, some of my best friends were white. <laughs> right? So... uh but I had this profound dream around 2003, 2004. I had this dream about Martin Luther King, the dreamer. And so, in this dream, I'm on my way to, I'm with my friend Lou Engel in the dream, and we're on our way to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. But before we could go to that church, that's the church where the Civil Rights Movement first got started, where Dr. King used to preach. The night, I was actually in town the night before, and we're actually going to do a reconciliation service there, the next day. But I had this dream the night before. So in the dream, we're trying to find how to get to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. But in the dream, we knew that we had to pick up Dr. King so we could find out how to get there. All right So in this dream, of course, it's a dream, we go by this house to pick up Dr. King, and he comes out of this house, and he has this huge white duffel bag with black handles on it. And in the dream, he starts emptying all this dark garbage out of that duffel bag then he throws the bag down violently and he comes again to this vehicle with us. And in the dream I thought to myself, man that bag make a nice souvenir. Shows you how carnal I am, right? Even in my dreams. I'm thinking, I went to Morehouse College Dr. King went to Morehouse College. The bag will make a nice souvenir. So that's what I'm thinking. So in the dream I get out of the vehicle with Lou to go pick up the baggage. But before I could touch it in the dream, Dr. King grasps me by my shoulders and he says, no! Do not go back and pick that up. And in the dream, he starts telling me what I need to do to heal the race issue in this nation. I began to weep in the dream, and all of a sudden, I wake up in the dream, my pillow is soaked with tears. I've been weeping in intercession the whole night. I didn't even realize it. I shared the dream with my friend Lou Engle. He begins to weep. We're like, God, give us the interpretation. And I'm like, God, remind me, what did Dr. King say to me in the dream? And the Lord said to me, William, the white bag with the black candles, that would be the interpretation for your dream. Then I realized what God was saying. The black handles represented how I, as a black man, African-American, had been handling my white baggage. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your white baggage. You've been carrying it for way too long. And I knew what the Lord was putting his finger on, because I, I know what it's like at 13 years old to come out of a convenience store with three friends of mine all around the same age. And a carload full of white guys chased us for over an hour and a half, called us the N-word, said they were going to shoot and kill us, they were joyriding, but we were terrified to death. I know what it's like at 19 years old to be in a, uh, a supermarket and have a cop uh, falsely accuse me of shoplifting. And when he couldn't find anything on me, he began to try to provoke me into a fight so he had a reason to, to take me in. I know what it's like in my 30s when I bought my new house, first new house. And the same police officer for the first three months, almost every week, pulled me over just for driving while black. I know what that's like. But you know what I've done? For every white person and every police officer in that area where I lived, I put those three experiences on every person that I saw. Every police officer that I saw. Every white person that I saw. Before I could ever have a conversation with anybody, I put those three experiences on them. That's the devil's diabolical plot. That's revelation. Chapter 12, where it says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. That word accuser is a powerful Greek word. It comes from the word categoros. is where we get the word category. In other words, the diabolical plot of the devil is to get us to categorize and stereotype each other. So, that before we can ever have a conversation with each other, we can put one bad experience or whatever stories on anybody else before we can ever have a dialogue with them. God was saying to me, William, get rid of your bitterness. Get rid of your resentment. Get rid of your unforgiveness. Get rid of any guilt manipulation. Get rid of your white baggage so we can all get in a new vehicle that can bring revival and justice for everybody. So, the question for all of us now is this what color is your baggage? Get rid of it, whatever it is, because we need each other, because only a united church can heal a divided nation. So, shared that, and we had this powerful time there, and there that old church with Dr. King, I had this book with me, a 600-page book called A Testament of Hope, and the book happens to just fall open to the I Have a Dream speech. <laughs> I go up to the old pulpit of Dr. King's and I start reading the I Have a Dream speech like a prayer and I get to this part where Dr. King says, I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. And for the first time, I pray for the family. They used to the own my family where this kettle pot comes from. But little did I know, Mr. Lewis started connecting me to some unfinished business. So... Just for the sake of time, i share this little bit of the story with you. So I, I met a man there who came there because of a dream. He had a dream about Lou Engle. And in the dream, they were praying for revival and the ending of abortion. He said at the time he had no heart or concern for the ending of abortion. He voted pro-life, he said, but he said, you know, the, the being vocal about it, that was everybody else's job. <laughs> Making a six-figure income. He's on the fast track in corporate America. His dad died, and so he began to ask all the questions, little, where did I come from? Where does my family come from? And then he has a dream with this Lou Engle person in the dream. He's like, is there such a person as Lou Engle? And so he goes to this newly invented thing at the time called Google, types in the name Lou Engle, and up pops the face of the man that he saw in his dream. His name is Lou and he's praying for revival in the ending of abortion. And he freaks out, because he had never had a dream like that. Shared the dream with his wife, decided to come to uh, this prayer gathering that Lou and I were doing on January 17, 2005, at the Lincoln Memorial. It was MLK Celebration Day. And uh, I got to my message, and I started sharing how this kettle pot came from the locket side of my family. He said he came forward, he said, you said Lockett, and I just have to tell you, that's my last name. So said, really? I said, how do, y- how do y'all spell your name with two T's or one? He said, we spell it with two. I said, oh, my family, we spell it with one. I said, where are your Lockett's from? Uh, and he said, oh, ours are from uh, Kentucky. I said, mine are from Lake Providence. So we thought it was some cool, cool like with Dutch and I, but we, it was good enough you know, to connect us, we prayed together. We've been friends for 15 years. When he took over Lou's ministry, um, I was one of his first board members. We've been friends for 15 years now. Well, fast forward. My friend, Matt Lockett, four years ago, he found out that the Civil War ended in his family's front yard. Yeah, it turns out the last battle of General Lee was at a farmhouse on April the 6th, 1865. April the 9th, I know the date. If you know the history, April the 9th, three days later, he surrendered at Appomattox later, but his last battle was at a house called Lockett's Farmhouse. And so we thought, man, what a cool cool coincidence. Here I have this kettle pot where people prayed underneath it for freedom, and you have this house where basically these prayers were answered at their house. That's amazing. So we thought, what a cool, cool coincidence, right? Well then, listen, we stumbled on more research, and then we found out that Matt's family is the family that owns my family where this kettle pot came from. So thinking about it, here's my family praying for the ending of slavery. And then all the way up at the farmhouse of the people used to own them, slavery comes to an end in their front yard. But then because he's the God of the past and the future, he weaves two people from those same family lines together, Matt and I, weaves us together so we can war against injustice in our day and cry for awakening in our time. Isn't that powerful? We put like two and a half years worth of research in this. Let me show you just a couple of slides to show you what, 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 what we're talking about. You put up the, uh, the next slide for me. That's the house. So it's still around today. It's been preserved. That is Lockett's farmhouse. And that's the memorial stone in the front, where it says, here Lee fought his last battle, April 6, 1865. And as the story goes, the northern army was in the front, the southern army was in the back, and the the, the history book says that all that stood between them was the locket house. The the house is still, like, riddled with bullet holes from the Civil War to this day. But you know what it's a picture of? It's a picture of the church. It's a picture of the house of prayer. God is calling us to stand in the gap between all the fighting that's going on between Uh, between the brothers right now you know what happened to this house after the civil war it became a hospital for both sides and former slaves worked as nurses with white nurses to mend the wounds of the brothers who have been fighting against each other that's what God is raising up he's raising up houses of church houses of prayer like this church they're gonna stand in the middle of all the conflicts of the ages yeah you're gonna take some shots but listen it's worth it to stand in the gap with Jesus you do not stand alone You go to the next slide for me. And that's, that's Matt and his family there at, at, at the house. Next slide. There's this guy showing the blood holes that are there still in the house. Next slide. And uh, this is where this guy is showing Matt the same family tree that uh, that he had been studying. It was right there. All that's listed right there in the house. Matt's name is on it and everything. Next slide for me. And this is where on, on the census where we found that uh, – my oldest known family member, that line is highlighted there. You can't see it, but his name is Isaac Lockett. He shows up. This is the 1870 census. He's living in Lake Providence at the time. He's 90 years old. But in that census, he said he was originally from Virginia. The only um, only uh, Lockett's in Virginia at that time period was Matt's family <laughs> when I did the research. So uh, after a year or more of doing research, we found out his family owned our family it's, Crazy story, I saw it in the book, next slide for me. So we got called by the town of Lake Providence to come and share our story a few years back. And uh, we go there and um, we, we actually found the plot of land where Sutton Plantation where Isaac Lockett used to live. And we found it and that that is the place where Sutton Plantation used to be so if he was there Ninety years old, five years after slavery, that's probably the place where he was a slave. What I'm getting at is this. There used to be a prayer meeting in the middle of the night on that plot of land right there we're looking at. Where people used to sneak in a barn and take this kettle pot and pray for you and pray for me. is powerful? Next slide. And so we, we spoke, and the town of Lake Providence actually gave us the keys to the city. God is releasing keys of providence to open doors no man can close, and the closed doors no man can open. He's healing the racial divide. He's releasing revival. The dignity for every life is coming back. In Jesus' name. Next slide. So we got a chance to share our story, the, the Lincoln Memorial. And uh, here's the interesting thing. Here we are at the Lincoln Memorial. That's the place where we met. (laughs) Had this prayer gathering there, but think about it. This happened to two guys who were led by dreams to the place where on MLK Celebration Day, to the place where Dr. King said, his I have a dream speech. I have a dream that one day the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit together at the table of brotherhood. Yeah, so maybe the dream speech wasn't poetry. Maybe it was prophecy. Maybe there's a dream king called the King of Kings who has a father who still wants to answer his prayer. Father, I pray there will be one so that your glory could come, so that the world will believe. Maybe God hadn't forgotten about the prayers of your granddaddy, your grandmother, and all the others that have gone before us. Next slide for me. So those two people right there, that's Napoleon Lockett, and the other one is Mary Lockett. And uh, there were some interesting people in that family. Uh, Napoleon Lockett was a colonel in the Confederacy. He owned Between he and his 11 children, they owned probably about 1,000 slaves. He owned 126 slaves just by himself. And uh, they were like the aristocrats, the, the, the gone with the wind kind of aristocrats from that day in the South. And his wife, Mary, she didn't like the fact that the Confederate White House didn't have its own flag. So she hired a designer, and she designed the very first Confederate flag. She came up with the idea for the Confederates to have a flag. And she hand-sewed it in her house and hand-delivered it to her friend, Jefferson Davis, (laughs) who was the president of the Confederacy. So next slide for me. So this is the flag that she created, the stars and the bars. And uh, they thought, well, that looks too much like the other flag that the Union Army has on the battlefield. Let's come up with a Confederate battle flag, too. So they came over with this flag, this is the one that everybody's familiar with, right? But because of praying people, praying in any kettle pots, <laughs> and because of white Christian abolitionists all around the country, and also in this family, I'll get to that in a second. Through the same family where the flag of rebellion was raised up in our country, next slide. The flag of surrender went up in their front yard because of prayer, because of intercession. Then we found out something else, too. We learned that uh, Matt, not a year and a half later, Matt would just happen to be reading a book about Methodist circuit riders, and he came across the name of a man named Daniel Lockett. He looked up his genealogical research. It was a man from his family. He had a family member that actually was a circuit rider who preached with Francis Asbury. Now, why is that important? Well, the circuit riders... Everywhere they preached, they had a, a thing called a manumission book with them, and whenever they would preach, they would have an altar call, and when they hold altar call, if you were a slave owner, they would slide the manumission mission book over to you so you can legally sign it to set your slaves free. So yeah, he had slave owners in his family, but he also had uh, this man here who was a revivalist and an abolitionist who took a strong stand against slavery. So that's, that's like all of our families. We all have these things called generational curses and generational blessings, right? right? You see alcoholic after alcoholic in a family, right? Or you see another family that has blessing after blessing after blessing operating in the family. Those are generational curses, generational blessings. The, the curses are real, they're powerful. They go to three or four generations, sometimes 10. But listen, generational blessings go to a thousand generations. That means basically forever, right? But they represent these dominating themes of storylines over families. And what God is shouting to America right now is this. What storyline do you want to be a part of? The healing of the hurt, the blessing of the curse. What storyline do you want to be a part of? So uh, next slide for me real quick. So we, Matt and I actually went back to this place. Next slide. And uh, we took the kettle back to the place <laughs> where the prayers were answered. And next slide for me. And uh, that's us as that's that's we cleaned ourselves up a bit. We, we prayed, we cried, we spent time together. And we put those two memorials together, that memorial stone and this kettle memorial stone. You know, the thing about those pile of rocks in Joshua chapter 4, God didn't see a pile of rocks. You know what he saw? He saw the 12 great-great-grandsons of his covenant friend Abraham who left everything to follow him. Because God loves to remember and when he looks at this pot, he doesn't see a old cast iron pot. You know what he sees? The people who risked their lives to pray for freedom and the people who fought for that freedom. Memorial stones show up at an interesting place. First Kings chapter 18, when Elijah is having a showdown with the prophets of Baal, when they were doing child sacrifice and everything else. He says, how long will you halt between two opinions talking to Israel? If the Lord is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. And he says that Elijah repaired the altar that was torn down, the altar of prayer. You know what he used to rebuild the altar? Twelve memorial stones. In other words, the altars of Israel were built off the memories of the history of God's faithfulness with the forefathers. And so when he had a showdown with the prophets of Baal, he was basically saying, God, on these old stones, on these old memories, release a new fire for the next generation. Stand to your feet. I just want to say this. I don't know. It's my first time here, but the deal is this. I don't know if this is your first time or whatever, but the deal is it's not a mistake that you're here today. Why? Because somebody prayed for you. Even before this service, I was with them. Believe me, this is a praying church. They've been praying for you for weeks. Even beyond that, hundreds of years ago, there were folks who were praying for you. Two thousand years ago, there's an intercessor and a prayer warrior who had you in mind. His name is Jesus Christ, who still lives to make intercession for you. I talked about my uncle Willie, who unwillingly gave his back to be beaten. But listen, Jesus Christ willingly gave his back to be beaten for us all. And by his stripes, he's healing history. <laughs> and by his blood, he is uniting us. And he wants to connect you to his unfinished business, even in your own family. So you're here today. You don't ever hear head bowed, every eye closed. I don't know how you do it here. But you're here. You don't know Jesus Christ. It's your personal Lord and Savior. Listen, I want to pray for you. I want to pray with you. You had a praying mother. You had a praying grandfather. You had somebody praying for you. God, this could be the moment <laughs> that those prayers get answered. And you could step into a whole new level of freedom. The generational curses in your family could be broken off. And you can take a step into the storyline that God meant for your family and meant for you. You, you want to get set free from that addiction cycle that's been in your family or the, the divorce cycle in your family, the witchcraft cycle that's been in your family. You want that junk broken off, the Masonic influences that's been in your family. You want that junk broken off? God can take care of that, right? Now that's you. Slip your hand up. I am going to pray with you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Now I want to ask you. Those who you raised your hand, I know for every reason you raised it, but listen, take a step of faith and meet me right here at the altar. Let's let's agree together in prayer. Come on, come on. Let's give them a, a, a let's give them a round of applause they're coming forward. So, Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for these who who, are coming here right now. And God, I ask you, Holy Spirit, begin to search your hearts. Just in your own way, just begin to pray and repent. Just the things you know you need to say, God, I'm so sorry for this, that, you know, you want to deal with those things right now. Deal with them right now. In your own way, just go ahead and pray to him and say, Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me my sins, but come into my heart. Take over my life. Just pray that. But everybody that's here right now also, too, I want to lead you in a prayer. Everybody talks about generational curses. Yeah, they're real and powerful, but generational blessings go to a thousand generations. Let's break that junk off right now. Y'all want to deal with that right now? All right, just everybody repeat this prayer through me. Dear Lord Jesus, I forgive the sins of my forefathers. Every sin of hatred and bigotry, every sin connected to witchcraft and the occult, every sin connected to uh, sexual immorality, divorce. God, I ask for forgiveness on behalf of my forefathers but I erect the cross of Christ between myself and those curses. And I call forth the generational blessings meant for my family. I call forth the spiritual inheritance that, that you want to release. I call forth the unfinished business of my family line. I call forth the redemptive purpose for which I was born into this family. And I call forth all the unfinished business from the, from the spiritual uh, from the uh, from the saints uh, in the faith Christian believers in this region Lord the things you want us to take up but more importantly but more importantly the unfinished business of your son Jesus who said greater works are I was going to do I receive the greater works now in Jesus name amen and amen come on let's give the Lord a clap and a shout Father I break the power of generational curses. We call for generational blessings. We call for spiritual inheritances. We call for the redemptive reason for which we are born into the families, born into this region. God, we ask for the mantles to come. The mantles from your son connected to this region, to this family, to this place. In the name of Jesus, we release it, be released right now in Jesus' name. Psalm 133 anointing. God, let there be a mingling of anointings right now. So that generations even yet to be created I can praise You, Jesus' name.